From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Dan Mullen himself said that the streak was bound to end eventually, but few expected it to reach its conclusion this past weekend. Kentucky overwhelmed the Gators in the swamp with a relentless rushing attack that kept the defense on the field and exposed many of the challenges that the new coaching staff has in turning around the program. On today's show, we'll break down just what went wrong against the Wildcats and how the Orange and Blue plan to bounce back with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Then, we'll chat with redshirt senior Moral Stevens about his first career touchdown and the keys to thriving under three different coaching staffs. But first, even if the lessons were unpleasant, the Gators undoubtedly learned a lot about themselves this past weekend. The question very early in the season now becomes, what are they going to do about it? We discussed this broad topic with Scott and Chris and began by addressing what stopped the streak at 31. Well, I mean, the Gators just couldn't tackle. I mean, I'll start there. I mean, you saw so many missed tackles. I think Dan Mullen pointed out he had counted 20 that led to 168 yards. That allowed Kentucky to put together some massive drives. I mean, two 90-yard drives, a 78-yard drive. They just couldn't get Kentucky off the field. They were 9-13 on third down. That was the most glaring part of it. You know, we can go more into the philosophical side of what Dan Mullen said afterward, that the Gators aren't physical enough. Uh, they're going to have to improve the physicality to compete in the SEC. And, uh, of course, that all goes back. I mean, tackling is a huge part of that. Blocking up front offensively was a huge part of that. Uh, it was just a game, simply put, that the Gators got out muscled in and got out played in. I said after the game, the thing that struck me the most by far was what happened defensively. I mean, I, I was in on this defense. I mean, I wrote stories about 10 men up front who are, and how deep the defensive line was, and I thought it was going to be a really, really good defense. Now, having said this, the first defensive series of the game, you lose Marco Wilson. That's a, that's a big loss for a secondary that was already pretty thin uh, to begin with as far as proven players, and we're talking to Scott, one of the three best players on the team, five best players on the team. Oh, Marco, certainly. Yeah, certainly, yeah. Um, but to watch Kentucky look faster and more athletic uh, and stronger, rushed for over 300 yards. Benny Snell had 175 yards rushing. I mean, there were plays, I think it was third and nine, where Wilson ran out of his end zone for a 19-yard gain out to the 30, and later that series, or he just zipped through untouched for his touchdown run, and later in the quarter had the third and 16. He just had all day back there to throw. Mm-hmm, yeah, no and, pressure. Upon. Yeah, and... That was all pretty alarming stuff, I think. And for when you thought that the defense was going to be able to carry the offense, I think I think Scott and I talked in. We do a FaceTime uh, live before the game, and we're just talking about let's let's see what what a defense is that as long as the defense doesn't have to be on the field all the time because of the offense, the, the Gators are going to be making strides. Well, the Gators were on the field defensively a lot because of the defense. And uh, that's not something that, uh, that that I expected to happen. And I don't want to speak for Scott, but I don't think Scott expected that to happen. Certainly not in the manner it did Saturday night against a team like Kentucky. You mentioned the loss of Marco Wilson and how significant that is. 
you know, there's really nothing you can do about it, which is the worst part. But the inevitable question that follows is, what now? And for Florida, there's not a ton of options to answer that question, which is part of what, what makes it such a difficult loss. Well, what now is Trey Dean's going to get an uh, opportunity to, to step in and uh, start as a true freshman. Uh, we've talked about Trey as a guy that looked ahead of the curve, uh, you know, among the first year players. He got here in January. But anytime you lose a talent like Marco Wilson, I mean, you know, Dan Mullen talked about it yesterday. One of the best players on the team. It's not an easy, easy replacement. Uh, they like Trey Dean. Uh, I think, you know, he's got potential to be the kind of lockdown corner that Marco Wilson and C.J. Henderson had uh, formed back there. I think it's just the secondary right now that's pretty thin, Adam. Uh, you know, so when you lose one of the marquee guys back there, it just creates more concern. And it's going to create kind of a domino effect. You know, Trey Dean moves up. So that means young players like uh, Donovan Stein or uh, Jawan Taylor is safety. They're going to be asked to do more. Obviously, John Huggins, a freshman uh, corner who had an interception late in the season opener, maybe he, he gets elevated on the depth chart. So whenever you lose a player of that caliber, it, it's obviously going to leave a void. It, it's all, you know, we all hear it in football, man down, man up, right? I mean, that's all you can do, basically, uh, these coaches. Todd Grantham was talking about it last night after practice. He said, look, nobody's going to feel sorry for us. They're going to have their own injury problems. we got to deal with it. we got to find some guys who can make plays and help cover that loss. And that's really the only option. Yeah, I think a lot of people were looking to see how Dan Mullen would react after the loss because it was so shocking. And, and he was very calm. He was very measured. And I think his response said a lot about the job he knows he has to do and maybe – some of the work that's got to happen that people on the outside don't realize. He even said, hey, we could have hit a Hail Mary to win the game there at the end. Wouldn't have changed anything that happened. It wouldn't have changed the fact that we have a lot of problems that we realize that we have to address. So I think while you're disappointed by what happened, if you're a fan, I think you should be encouraged by how well that Dan Mullen seems to grasp the challenge that's at hand right now. Let's rewind one year when the Gators did hit a Hail Mary and, and in a game that maybe they didn't deserve to win. And there's jumping up and down and all that stuff. And uh, there were a lot of problems on that team that went on to finish 4-7 and seven against a Tennessee team that went 0-8 in the league. So he was exactly right. He was very on point. I thought, as, to your point, I thought the way he handled it was great. You know, we're told in the locker room, he was very measured, very similar response, very level-headed. There were some decisions made in the locker room. I think you may have seen a, uh, a tweet that went out or an Instagram post that went out from a player in the locker room that decided he was transferring after the game. Uh, Dan Mullen handled that right then and there and uh, spoke about it in the in the post or excuse me in his uh, Monday press conference that Darius Lemons was no was no longer on the team. I mean, he took charge in a very difficult and a very emotional situation by being the adult in the room, being level headed saying what need to be said and putting context to the whole situation. Uh, I think he's been talking about the need to practice better. He said, Scott, if I'm not mistaken, you can't practice like it's a walkthrough every day. And yeah. uh, that, that was that was something. I mean, walkthroughs are just that. They're walkthroughs. You have to finish plays and practice, and that means uh, being a little more physical, uh, being a little more on point, being a little more concentrated in everything. You, you hope it's a wake-up call. You don't know how, how, how the team's going to handle it. 
It's now right there in front of them. All the stuff that Dan Mullen's been telling them about manifested itself in something that hadn't happened in this program in 32 years. So if that doesn't get the players' attention, I don't think anything will. In terms of changing this narrative and doing it quickly, uh, we are expecting to see guys like C.C. Jefferson, David Reese back on the field for that defense this weekend. How much of an impact can they make as individuals, or are the things we're talking about more holistic across the entire defense? Well, I mean, obviously, both uh, Reese and Jefferson, you know, entered the year as two of the veterans. You got to remember, those were two of the three players that Dan Mullen took to Atlanta with him for SEC Media Days, and neither one has played this season yet. David Reese led the team in tackles last year. Uh, CC Jefferson's arguably their most talented defensive lineman. Reese has been out with injury. CC's been suspended for academic related issues. So I can only imagine that you know it's good. It's a good thing if you if you're Todd Grantham and Dan Mullen, you're trying to figure out how to overcome some defensive woes that plague you against Kentucky. All those missed tackles. Those two guys. Should be able to help. I thought the biggest hole really defensively in the uh, Kentucky game. I mean, I, the Rashad Jackson, who we talked about prior to the game, is a guy who needed to really step up. You know, he had a rough game. He missed some tackles, and uh, Kentucky boy, they picked up a lot of yards past the second level. And uh, so David Reese, he could certainly help in that regard. I don't know in speaking to the bigger picture, uh, what we talked about the physicality part. Uh, those guys as leaders can maybe help in that locker room to get that message across. But right now, I think just having them back on the field, making plays, I mean, that would be a huge boost in terms of uh, accomplishing something uh, positive against Colorado State. Yeah, we talked about the offensive line a lot coming into the year. It was certainly a big topic of discussion. And through two weeks, uh, it's still a topic of discussion because they haven't quite gotten the job done uh, in the way that, you know, that Dan Mullen and his staff expect. And certainly it's limited the running game. It's prevented guys like Jordan Scarlett, Michael P. Ryan, Malik Davis from really getting those carries and getting going. So as we go forward here, what do you guys see as far as this offensive line and the revolution? Is it just those guys having to do more? Do they shuffle the deck? Are there other bodies that can help? How do you solve some of those issues up front? Those guys are going to have to figure some stuff out. The, and, and to flip it around, the coaches are going to have to figure out how to put them in, in better positions to succeed, uh, given the limitations they have. Maybe that means instead of playing uh, five different running backs, you know, maybe streamlining it down to two or three. You know, I'd like to see Jordan Scar- what Jordan Scar can do with 18 to 22 carries in a game. And maybe make Malik Davis or Michael Pierron here just a change of pace kind of guy. I'm not sitting here second guessing them, but that's something that hadn't happened yet. So maybe that's something that they're down there thinking about in the in the coach's office right now relative to planning for Colorado State. But I imagine if I'm Jordan Scott, I'd, I'd, I'd like to have a chance to maybe uh, see what I can do with a, maybe a little bit of a, a, of a more diet of, of getting the ball more. We, we know he's capable of it. Um, the, you know, being behind doesn't really lend itself uh, to giving a running back a bunch of carries. But Florida was ahead for you know a good portion of that game, mm-hmm. 10 to 7 goal in the second half. But uh, I, you know that's something Dan Mullen's going to have to figure out, whether it means maybe a different uh, element to the passing game that will help get their running game going. But the offensive line it, you know, has to be better than it has been. But this isn't a shock. This is something we've been talking about for since last year. Remember, they returned 55 starts from last year's 11-game season on the offensive line. So it's, just, it's the same guys and a lot of the same problems. Maybe if 
I think if they had a hundred, one hundred percent Brett Hagee, I think that could possibly help uh, sticking him in there, and whether it be at the guard or the, they experimented him some with the center position, I think. But again, that's one guy. Uh, he played a little bit in the in in the first game. Um, I don't think he played against Kentucky, uh, but a healthy Brett Hagee could help. But I, I I I still think it's more on a thing with the offensive line as a unit, that room, and the coaches trying to figure out the best way to put those guys in a in position to be successful. And Adam, I think going along the, the other topic that we talked about, the physicality issue, when I look at the Gators the last couple of years, I mean, to me, an offensive line, that's that epitomizes. If you're, if you're not physical up front there, you're not going to succeed consistently. Whatever you do, passing, running, uh, whatever your scheme is, whoever your quarterback is, it does not matter. I, I think that has been an ongoing issue there. You know, you, some of these guys are familiar faces. I mean, we've talked about the the guys who have that fight physical streak. T.J. McCoy, he got a lot of uh, recognition from the other coaching staff because of that. Uh, but he's he's not starting now. Brett Heggie's another guy that these these guys have talked about being a physical presence. So, but it needs to be more than you know one or two guys. Whoever is in the lineup, I mean, uh, I think when your offensive line can set the tone with a physical presence, uh, that really does so much for just the unit as a whole. And uh, you know, we can talk about the physical nature of, of the team, top to bottom. To me. If your offensive line's not part of that conversation, you're not going to be able to uh, have success consistently. What also has a big impact on what your quarterback's able to do and the ability to you know, get the ball to the playmakers. We've talked about Florida's playmakers, but without the offensive line performing at, at the right level, difficult to get those guys as involved. So curious for your guys' thoughts on Felipe Franks, what we've seen out of the quarterback position out through two weeks, because that still is something so many fans are, are highly focused on. You know, it's kind of mixed results. I thought he handled everything well the first game. Uh, I think he went out there, gained some confidence, and did exactly what he needed to do. Uh, I thought against Kentucky in the first half, I thought he looked better than he did in the second half. I think oh, the game situation dictated some of the things they were trying to do in the second half. Uh, he was back there throwing the ball more. I don't think the offense ever found the true rhythm uh, once they got down and Part of that's what we talked about earlier with the running game. The, the huge plays maybe weren't there. I, I think still that's a, that's a work in progress. Uh, I think Dan Mullen is still trying to figure out what Felipe Franks does best in his offense. I think Franks is still trying to figure out exactly what he needs to do to succeed on a consistent basis in this offense. And uh, it, it's just going to take time. I, I didn't see anything to where... I felt that. I mean, that loss certainly was not on Felipe Frank's shoulder in any way. No. That was a that was defensive issues that put them in some situations offensively where Felipe had to drop back and try to make some plays, and, and it's harder to make plays. I I did. I mean, the fifteen play ninety nine yard drive uh, that was a, a when they needed it. That was a good sign, but again, uh, they were playing from behind the whole fourth quarter and. And uh, it's hard to, uh, they just couldn't come up with that big play at the end. So up next, Colorado State, they just beat Arkansas. So they're certainly going to have the Gators' attention. They got a lot of people's attention with that result. And now you've got to think that because of that, they've got some confidence coming in, also seeing the way that Florida played. So what looks do we expect Colorado State to, to show the Gators? 
Well, they have an offense. They can get up and down the field a little bit and have done so. Um, they were down 18 in the fourth quarter, I believe, or late, or with three minutes left in the um, third quarter uh, at home against Arkansas. And uh, K.J. Carter Samuels, the quarterback, he transferred from Washington. He threw for 389 yards, a couple touchdowns. He was picked off once. They have a wide receiver named Preston Williams, who's a transfer from Tennessee. He caught 12 passes for 150 yards and 154 yards and two scores. What I do think can happen, though, Adam, this uh, this Colorado State defense is um, I don't know what else to say other than awful. So I, I would I would hope that Florida could get some um, some kind of confidence and some kind of rhythm going. I mean, Hawaii Hawaii hung six seventeen on them. Okay, five hundred thirty seven through the air. Wow. Uh, in in their game, five hundred ninety six yards against Colorado. They gave up. And 437 to Arkansas. So we're talking about a, a, a defense that has given up well over 500 yards a game through the first three games. They come in here. This is a game, as as Scott will tell you. This is the, the only reason they're playing this game. It was part of the Jim McElwain buyout. Uh, Colorado State is getting two million dollars to come in here, so it, they'll be well rewarded for whatever happens. <laughs> on, on the field Saturday, but the most important thing, obviously, is from where the Gator stand is. For them to come in there and uh, uh, do some stuff against a defense that has shown to be uh, very giving as far as yards go. And the Felipe Franks and that offensive line need to take advantage of that. And if they don't, then that'll be something that uh, we we'll, can talk candidly about in the podcast next week. Yeah, you don't want to be talking about a loss uh, to Colorado State after that Kentucky game. Arkansas is talking about it right now. But they are. I mean, they yeah. did what they did out at uh, what well, was in. Uh, Fort Collins, but what they did to Arkansas is impressive. You know, trailing uh, what about eighteen uh, late yeah. and coming back to win. And and the story of the season so far for Colorado State, sure that defense uh, you know has a lot of holes in it. I'm looking here; they're giving up 550 yards per game through three games. They're giving up 7.7 yards per play. So if you're, wow. you know, if you're um, Dan Florida, Mullen, Florida gave up seven and a half yards of carry. Yeah, against Kentucky. Against Kentucky. But if you're if you're down there in the in the offices right now, you're Felipe Franks and Dan Mullen and uh, Billy Gonzalez and Hevesy. You know, you're looking at what you can do offensively. You got to like some of what you're seeing against that defense, probably. Uh, on the flip side, uh, it's going to be a game that wow. those Colorado State players are going to be fired up for. Uh, coming to a place that they've never been to uh, against an opponent coming off a big win. You know, of their own, and an opponent that obviously in the Gators coming off a tough loss. Uh, you're, you're, I'm kind of interested, Adam, just to see the energy of the stadium of the team. There was a lot of uh, good vibes after the opener. Obviously, uh, then you lose Kentucky. And, you know, the fans this week on the message boards and in the email and stuff. They're they're down in the dumps now. They're wondering what, where where's the Gators headed? I think this game. I've always said you. You learn a lot more about a team coming off a tough loss than you do a, a cupcake win. So I think we're going to find something else about this Florida team uh, this week. How do they respond? Uh, you know, Dan Mullen's certainly interested. I know the fans are interested. I'm interested. Let's wrap up now with our PAT. Uh, and this is going to be uh, inspired by the NFL, which started this past weekend, and at least for the uh, for the Falcons was a very unenjoyable experience. But that happens sometimes in the league. But one of the big storylines in the weeks leading up to the start of the year was that the Raiders and Chris's favorite, 
John Gruden, at least because he does such a, a killer John Gruden impression. Uh, he decided to trade Khalil Mack, arguably the best defensive player in the NFL right now, to the Chicago Bears. And certainly got a lot in return, but he also gave up what became clear on Sunday to everyone on a national television audience. Uh, probably is the best defensive player in the NFL, who's now playing with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. Some are saying it's the worst trade maybe ever. What I want to know from you guys is thinking about that, what are some of the dumbest trades, player transactions that you can remember in your time where you got rid of a guy and then said later, wait a minute, that was a really, really big mistake? Well, I wasn't alive in 1920. I'm not sure the exact year it was. 1919. When the Boston Red Sox uh, uh, sent Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees in exchange for the rights to the Broadway show No No Nanette, I think so. I think No No Nanette made a comeback in the 70s, I think, on Broadway, but I don't think it did very well. Um, I think I was alive, though, in Golden State. I forget. They traded uh, Parrish, Robert Parrish, to the Boston Celtics, as well as a first-round pick and in exchange for a handful of players. And that first-round pick ended up being Kevin McHale. So they got Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale for a bunch of slappies, as far as I remember. <laughs> Those guys went on to, to win a bunch of um, three world championships together. Um, but the one trade that sticks out of me, and, I, and we like to provide context here since we've been in the profession. I was covering the Bucks actually, when the Raiders traded John Gruden to the Bucks. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, they got in return two number ones, two number one twos, and just for the sake of it, eight million up your backside dollars. Hmm. And uh, they were just, Al Davis was so happy with the, you know, look what we just got for a coach. And, of course, that coach ended up beating the Raiders in the Super Bowl uh, 11 months later. Gruden wasn't great with the Bucks, but he had that one shining moment against his old team, against uh, Al Davis. And that's certainly that's something that, uh, that I'll never forget. And uh, um, uh, the players, some of the players that the Raiders got in, in the, with those draft picks, weren't exactly stellar players either. So uh, I think any owner would, would make that trade if they knew on the back end. They would sign that paper right then. If they knew on the back end, it would net them a Super Bowl, especially as quickly as that was. Scott? Oh, wow. This is a good question. I mean, it's interesting, Chris, that we you mentioned that trade that Gruden had with the Bucks. And when it's funny the Tampa Bay is famous for this because when the Rays got Lou Pinella, mm -hmm. they traded their best player at the time, Randy Wynn, to Seattle as part of that trade. But that's by far not even on this list. I just found that coincidental here. I mean, I think, Adam, whenever you're talking about trades, stuff of this nature, yeah, it's getting a lot of hype right now. I don't know how it was, it's going to turn out in the long run. I, I, I think John Gruden proved himself that if it was going to work there, guess what? It, it's time to move on. He'll put his own stamp on the franchise. But to me, Babe Ruth is the one that there's nothing that tops that, man. I mean, okay, you're talking about American iconic sports figures. You've got Babe Ruth is the first one. Muhammad Ali's up there. Before 1960, 1970, before Muhammad Ali emerged on the scene, I mean, Babe Ruth for 40, 50 years, he was the greatest American sports figure, and he still resonates today 100 years after that trade. And uh, and the curse of the Bambino. Of yeah, that's, I mean that just plays so, that just plays yeah. into it whether so you trade it to your biggest rival also. Yeah, yeah. so I don't, I don't think anything tops that. Uh, whether or not 
you uh, have ever you know read a word about Babe Ruth and who, who he was, or uh, if you're on Twitter all day. <laughs> uh, Adam, what about when the Falcons traded Brett Favre? That, that's probably not a not a great trade. That for a, your squad, yeah, yeah. Right? that's were that's, alive, that's another one. Were you alive for that? Were you alive for that? I yes, I was alive for that. I was okay. there's there, yeah. Atlanta's involved in a couple of those because there was. I mean, that was a terrible trade. Uh, that gave away Brett Favre, but then on the flip side of that, uh, around the same time, I believe it was when the Braves traded to get John Smoltz for virtually nothing from Detroit at the time. So, you know, I guess it, it kind of goes both ways if you look at the city holistically. I'll tell you the best big trade in NFL history, Jimmy Johnson, Dylan Herschel Walker to the Vikings for all those draft picks. Mm-hmm. That worked out pretty well. These kind of trades happen. Uh, they're always going to be big news. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, I think the Raiders, they'll be fine. The Herschel Walker trade was, uh, it was, it was five players, first round pick and six draft picks. And one of those draft picks ended up being, um, Emmett Smith. So it worked, it worked out good for Jimmy Johnson. If you recall, that was a one in 15 Dallas team. So they had to take their lumps with that. And, uh, what was Jerry Jones first year owning the team? But the next year they went seven and nine. The year after that, they went to the, uh, they they went to the playoffs, I believe, and then the year after that, they won the Super Bowl, which ended up being the first of three, three over the next years. four years. Right. Yeah. So it's hard to with these trades. You have to see, especially when then a lot of them are based on draft picks. You, you check later on and reflect back to see well, who did those picks turn into? Because the Raiders, hey, John Gruden could use those draft picks and he could put together a Super Bowl caliber team with those draft picks five years <laughs> from now, but we we just don't know yet. Here's what I know. If that happens, John Gruden will have a good one-liner in about three or four years about Khalil Mack. What will John Gruden say down the road if, if that happens? Get, give us a little flavor of that. I'm not going to get into that right now, Adam, okay? <laughs> you know, I, I'm not going to get real deep and philosophical with you guys because I know that's what you like to come in in a press conference and poke and prod me and try to get me to say something like that. I'm not going <laughs> to engage in what you guys are trying to get me to engage in. Next question. Well, we got our weekly Chris impression of John Gruden, and, and that's really all we can ask for. Uh, but on top of that, fans can also get all of Chris and Scott's content over on FloridaGators.com leading up to the Colorado State game. Check them out on Twitter as well, at Gators Scott, at Gators Chris. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much as always. We'll talk to you next week. All right. Thanks, Adam. All great stories have a moral, and this one is no different. After grinding through a position change and three coaching staffs over five years, Moral Stevens hauled in his first career touchdown versus Kentucky and proved that hard work does pay off. But Stevens' story goes deeper than that, so we wanted to chat with him to find out more. We began by asking Moral about the morale in the locker room after the tough loss to the Wildcats. Uh, basically, Coach Mullen was telling us the same thing that, that we've seen on film, that in practice this week, we got to keep bringing our tempo and our energy and basically telling us how we got to improve every week. Well, I know it was it was a difficult game overall. You did score your first career touchdown. So mm-hmm. can you tell us about that play and, and what was going through your head as you're running wide open down the middle of the field? Well, well honestly, like as soon as they called that play, I, I already knew Coach Mullen liked to call that play once you get in the red zone or whatever. And um, like before the ball got snapped, I seen the safety roll down. And as soon as safety came in the box, I already kind of knew it was going to be a touchdown. And then Felipe just seen me early and, and threw it up for me. And 
Is that hard in a way? If you're looking, if you're looking at the defense and you basically know you're lined up in a position to score your first career touchdown, and you know the swamp's about to go live, and you've been there for five years, I mean, do you mm-hmm. almost do you have to almost calm yourself down to make sure that you execute on what what was ultimately a pretty simple play? You really don't have to call. You really don't have time to call yourself down because at, at the same time, the, you know, you're in that tempo offense. So, so at the same time, like like in my head, I'm going through it. But really and truly, I just do what I always do in practice. So we always we always call it in playing practice, and I just execute it. So I imagine when you've put in the time that you have to the program over the course of five years, that's got to be a huge moment for you. So can you just talk about what it meant to score your first touchdown in the swamp and have all that hard work sort of come to fruition in that moment? I mean, it meant a lot because, like you say, I've been for I've been working every day since you know since since up to this moment to um, have opportunity to even score a touchdown in the swamp. To be honest with you, man, my mom and, and my family was very proud and stuff, and I, I was just happy I was able to make them proud and even make myself proud. You know what I'm saying? Because I, I have been putting in a lot of work, a lot of work, and I've, like you said, I've been for a long time. Now, when you guys got back out to practice on Monday, in what ways did you feel the Kentucky game affected the approach to that first practice and then in the days since then? I feel like um, by us taking a loss, then, like based on the game, I feel like that we should have won. And I, I kind of think that kind of woke the team up, like woke the team up and everybody locked in and, and even more focused. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, sure. Now, going back to the beginning of your story, can you tell us about your family and, and where you grew up? I grew up in a, um, a very small town in Perry, Florida. Uh, that's like, I would say like an hour away from Tallahassee. I, I grew up with both of my parents and my and my sister and my brother. Oh uh, yeah, and I grew up just playing like you know what I'm saying sports, basketball, football. I, I was doing pretty good, like like growing up, growing up playing pop Warner through high school. Now, what were sports a big part of your family for your brother and sister as well, or was that sort of your thing? As of right now, my little brother is um playing for my high school as of right now, and he's having a pretty good season right now. And and I also had a sister that they used to always win like uh, like Big Ben awards. We used to call them Big Ben awards in basketball. Like all in surrounding counties, she was known for playing basketball. Huh. I so so it ran in the family a little bit. Okay. Yes, sir. Now you talked about Perry, Florida, a really small town. Most people don't know much about it. What's something unique about your hometown, and, and what did you guys do for fun growing up there? The only thing you really can do is probably you can just go to the park and play basketball, or basically just playing playing like sports in the summer. I mean, there ain't really too much you can do. We used to have like a like a skate ring that everybody used to go to when I was younger. <laughs> a, little, a little skate ring when I was like in middle school. Used to hang out there a little bit. And I can see now why sports were, were a big deal there. Uh, when did you get into football, and, and when did you get hooked on football? Uh, I started playing flag football um when I was like five years old back then in Perry. You couldn't play flag, I think, until you were like seven or six. So I started playing early. And then I, I thought I moved up then to recreation when I was like nine, nine or ten. And you also had to be 10 and 12 to go up. I moved up early again. And I actually I started playing middle school ball only when I was on um, like my eighth grade year. Huh. My eighth grade year. I started playing like for the school. And honestly, I didn't even play receiver. Like I was just basically just like a, a punt return guy, kick return guy. Like I didn't I didn't really too much of a receiver until later on in the season. And then after my eighth grade year, I, I actually decided I wasn't going to play football my ninth grade year. Really? Yeah, like, because I was so focused on basketball. Because growing up, everybody thought I was going to be, like, a, a basketball player. Sure. Because <laughs> I used to, like, travel on the, all the, like, the A&U teams and stuff. 
then after that happened, the head ball coach had seen me playing in the gym. I was dunking in the gym and stuff. And then he asked me to come out. And ever since then, it's, it's been football. And then I start, I ended up getting my first offer, like my ninth grade, ninth grade summer going to 10th grade from um, Utah. Utah, the first school to offer me. Wow. When did Florida come to the picture then? And especially being so close to Tallahassee, was there a lot of uh, a lot of seminal stuff going on there as well? Yeah, see, like my first big big offer was from Florida State. And then after Florida State offered me, that's when I started again. You know what I'm saying? Miami, Virginia Tech, like schools like that, like the bigger schools. And then ever since then, like I would say probably like my junior year, I had came to one of these camps, I think it was the, the Friday Night Lights camp, mm-hmm. and um, Coach, Coach Muschamp and um, – Coach Pease had seen me out there running routes and stuff. And then that's when I, I ended up coming in my senior year, like a couple of weeks before signing day. And at that point, you were still a wide receiver, correct? Mm-hmm. So when did you make the switch to tight end? Why did that happen? And how difficult was that transition? Must have actually like, never told me that I was going to play receiver when I got here. He, he just told me he was going to try to use me, use me in space. It, it's almost like how they was trying to do like Jordan Reed when they had him split out a lot. Sure. Mostly doing like slot stuff, but I, I ended up registering and then y'all, y'all already know um, Coach Mutch ended up getting fired. So now that's when Coach Mac Coach McElwain came. So at this yeah. point you're you're pretty much you're all in on playing tight end, but you've got mm-hmm. all these constant coaching changes and, and you're kinda of unique mm-hmm. in the sense that you've played for three different head coaches, which not a lot of people <laughs> can say they've done. Yes, uh, I'm curious What's been the most challenging part of adjusting to each new staff that comes in? I, I would say the most challenging part would probably be just uh, like your coach is not really knowing what type of player you are. Because like I say, like after Coach Mustang got fired and then Coach Norton and Coach Matt came in and they just seen my size and they automatically thought that I, I was just, just a tight end. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So so by the time when they came in, like I say, I had just redshirted. So my body was still developing to a tight end. So by the time they came in, it was like, it was just basically trying to make me like an inline tight end, and and I wasn't ready. You know what I'm saying? Right. right. I, I wasn't ready yet, so it, I kind of think that kind of delayed me a little bit. But I, I mean, to be honest with you, the tight end position, like, like it really didn't take me that long to get used to it. What it really was is just, I, I guess, Coach McElwain didn't basically he didn't recruit me, yeah. So he really didn't know like what type of player I was. You know what I'm saying? Like he didn't know if I was a tight end or a receiver. So I. I guess he even wanted to play me at the tight end position. Well, and, and to that effect, you know, Coach Mullen's offense features a much bigger focus on the tight ends than the last offense. So how has your role really changed over the last year since the new staff came in? Uh, um, I just think um, Coach Mullen do a good job at basically like, um, giving us opportunity to make plays like in the open field. Because like last year, last year like, with Coach Mack and Coach Nuss, I, I kind of feel like they had us more like like inside the box blocking and, you know what I'm saying, like running sure. like flat routes sure. and stuff like that. Because I'm be honest, I don't think I even read a ever ran a, a scene ball when, when Coach Mack was here. Well, now it's working out pretty well for you. Right? You're scoring touchdowns with it. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at the the course of your career, you've interacted with so many different players. I can only imagine the number of guys you've got relationships with. Yeah. Which upperclassmen have had the biggest impact on you, and why? To be honest, which I really don't have an upperclassman. And like with me, man, if anybody ever tell you, like, I get along with everybody and, and we all like talk to each other about our problems and we all help each other through it. Like, I really don't have a like a person that I just go to and, and talk, you know what I'm saying? Like, go to and just talk, sure. talk to them. Given how long you've been with the program, you've witnessed some highs and then some lows as well. I'm yes, curious sir. what your most memorable moments are as a Gator. Maybe if there's a game that stands out in, in particular. Uh, probably on that LSU game, um, we beat LSU at um, 2016, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That probably was like the most, like the most memorable moment. And and of course my touchdown. 
<laughs> <laughs> what What do you remember about that LSU game? Um, it was around that time when that big old hurricane. Oh sure, came I remember. Through. Yeah, yeah, and the, and the LSU fan was talking trash. Saying, you know what I'm saying? Like, we was going back and forth talking trash and stuff, and then we ended up going over there and beating them. Everyone remembers that well, no question. Mm-hmm. You mentioned being from Perry, not a lot to do in Perry, a little bit more to do in Gainesville. So I'm curious, yeah. <laughs> when, you've, when you've got some time away from the field, what are some things you enjoy doing outside of football? If you, like, don't have, like, a, like a downtime, I'll probably, like, just, just spend time with my family, probably go, go on vacation with my family, probably go to the beach or something, just chill out, just chill out and relax. I don't really do too much, man. I'm a simple guy. You're a simple guy? Yeah, I don't really, I don't really do a lot. <laughs> well, in that case, I got a simple question for you to wrap things up. Uh, looking yes, toward this weekend, t- tell me some of the keys to getting back on track against Colorado State and, and you know, recovering from what was a tough blow against Kentucky. First off, I think we got to come out fast and attack. And, and most importantly, I do think we got to play a, a lot more physical, a lot more physical and, and have fast tempo on offense. And I think that could get us the dub right there. Well, we certainly hope that's the case, Morrill. Thank you so much for talking to us, and congratulations again on your first career touchdown. We hope there's many more to come. Yes, sir. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Catch the Gators as they look to bounce back against Colorado State on Saturday at 4 on the SEC Network and the Gator IMG Sports Network. Then come back next Thursday as we'll break it all down in a new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the swamp.